Well, how does a local church fulfill the Great Commission? Uh, Jesus gave the church this glorious command. He sort of repurposed the commission that was given to Adam in the first place, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And now, as the church is charged with this message that's going to bring about new creation on earth, the church is told, again, to be fruitful and multiply, but he describes it this way. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. This is a, it's a great, glorious, global commission that's been given to the church. It seems lofty, it seems ideal, it seems wonderful, but it's so great it can seem almost ethereal. Like, How do we actually make that practical for an average local church on a given Sunday? How does the local church a particular local church, go about fulfilling the Great Commission. Well, that's, that's what we want to talk about over the next six weeks in particular in this series. What are the practical, tangible things that we engage in as a local church that we believe will make us faithful at fulfilling the Great Commission? And this morning, I want to start that series by arguing that all of it starts with Preaching. It starts with the proclamation of God's word. Now, that may sound like I'm just trying to justify my own existence. <laughs> sure, said everybody said it. Sure, preacher. Of course it starts with preaching. But let me tell you, the reason why I do what I do is because I am convinced, because we as a church are convinced that this is what God calls us to. Some of you who are not so inclined to preaching or to sitting through long sermons, might already be rolling the eyes of your internal mind. Okay. I want to be clear about what we're not saying. We're not saying that we have great preachers. We're not saying that we have great sermons, and therefore we need to prioritize those. Instead of Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, whose, whose preaching by all accounts was anointed of the Holy Spirit in ways that uh, were, were um, almost unseen or unknown in his generation, uh, it's said of him that he testified to this. He said, I wouldn't cross the street to hear my own preaching. And if that was true of Lloyd-Jones, then let me tell you, I would happily keep my own sorry butt in bed rather than come to hear my own preaching. Believe me, I understand the struggle. I know that it's real. We don't come because we think we have great preachers. We don't devote ourselves to preaching because we think we have a wonderful preacher. We do it because we believe it's what God's word has said. We believe, is my argument this morning simple, we believe that to be a Great Commission fulfilling church, we must be devoted to expository preaching. And I'm going to try to give you three reasons why I believe if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, we must be devoted to expository preaching. The first is this, because we have an explicit command. We've been given an explicit command to devote ourselves to this now, we're just as humans, we're kind of naturally inclined, right, to want to disobey commands that were given 
Just you tell me to do something, I'm a little bit less inclined to want to do it now just because you told me to do it. That's just a reality of our hearts. But um, that, that we get extra room for that. We get extra bandwidth for that when the commands are unclear. So if, if, uh, if we get commands that, and, and we don't want to obey them in the first place and then they're unclear, it like encourages us to, to it stirs us up to want to disobey that much more. And we've seen that um, over the course of the past two years. The increasingly cloudy the commandments are, the more justification we feel in our own hearts for disobeying them. Some of us have been through that even the past few weeks as the case counts rise and people around us uh, get sick. And now we're reading through complicated public health instructions and what does close contact mean anyway? And is this really a requirement or is this a recommendation? And does it apply to me? And do the 10 days really mean 10 days? And all kinds of things that just all the commandments, the more unclear they are, the more we find there's, there's room for us to try to disobey them. But Paul Knowing our hearts through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit gives us a very explicit command. He says in our text in verse 13, until I come. Now let's be clear, the until I come does not mean this is a temporary measure. Like vaccine passports, temporary. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a temporary mission. When he says, until I come, what, what he means is simply this. Uh, you've got the pulpit, Timothy, until I come. <laughs> He's, he's left Timothy, he's made clear in chapter 1 that he's left him there to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, but to make sure the right thing is being taught. So to insist on sound doctrine, Timothy, you are to hold the pulpit until I come, at which point, presumably, the Apostle Paul will then take over. He's saying, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation, and to the teaching. There's a, uh, a definite article before each of those items, each of those elements in the original text that doesn't often, it, it translates awkwardly into English, but I think it's important that we understand the Apostle Paul is setting up these three elements as an expansion of what he says in 2 Timothy 4, which is uh, the command to preach the word. So, what we have been given here is an explicit command to devote yourself to at least these three elements of preaching. To, first of all, the reading of Scripture. Notice what the reading is of. It's reading of Scriptures. This is important, right? We understand that God has breathed out all Scriptures. That God has given these to us by inspiration. So that when we gather, it's not merely the invention of humans. It's not the opinions of people. It's not because Chancellor, Lord, so-and-so says something, or Pope, whatever, says something. It is because the Scriptures inspired by God have been given to the church so that we all sit under the same authority. This is not a preacher standing up in a pulpit declaring what he thinks the church ought to do. It is clear the reading sets the foundation, the basis of authority. It is the scriptures. The scriptures that are our authority. Functioning is the very revelation of God. They're to be read publicly, openly. So that everyone understands the justification for the exhortations that will come 
It comes from. If we were doing math, this would be showing our work. The scriptures must be read before the teaching is given. So the scriptures are read publicly, and then he adds there is teaching, which is to give the sense of, to explain, to, to, to help you understand. It's one thing to say, okay, these are the words, but what do the words mean? So there's teaching, there's explanation, and then he says there is exhortation. The word exhortation simply means to urge, to admonish, or to encourage. So you can understand it maybe this way. If the, the, the reading is asking what does God say, and the teaching is what does it mean, the exhortation is, well, then what do we do? What are we supposed to do in light of that? And these three elements are, are the three pieces that are being woven to get together to form the one rope, the command that has been given to us. And it's important that all three elements be incorporated. If we simply exhort without reading or teaching, it is an abuse of authority. It's claiming an authority for ourselves that is not ours. If we give teaching apart from reading, that strains the relationship of trust. Why are you teaching me something when I don't know if it comes from the Word of God? If we teach and read without exhorting, without training you to apply the Scriptures to yourself, then we run the risk of becoming religious hypocrites and Pharisees, acting like the Scriptures don't matter, becoming simply hearers of the Word and not doers. Expository preaching, as we practice, is an expression of an obedience to this command to devote ourselves to the reading and the exhortation and the teaching of the scriptures. Do you understand how this functions for us then as helping us to fulfill the Great Commission? The Great Commission, we are called to go and to make disciples. Disciples is bound up with teaching. What is the teaching that makes and matures disciples? The teaching that makes disciples. That teaches you how to become a follower of Jesus. Is the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As revealed in the scriptures. That Jesus Christ came and lived a righteous life in fulfillment of all the promises and all the righteous demands of God. He perfectly obeyed. He lived the life that was demanded of us that we have failed to live. And in fulfillment of all, all the prophecies and all the writings of Scripture about a perfect sacrifice who was to be given in our place, Jesus died for sinners. But on the third day, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus rose. He rose victorious over the last enemy, over death itself, so that everyone who trusts in Christ will have forgiveness of sins. The promise of eternal life is ours in Jesus. We have the promise, as we've been reading in Matthew's gospel, that a kingdom has come through the birth of a Savior, the life of a Savior, the ministry of a Savior, the death and resurrection of a King. You too may enter into this kingdom by faith and find forgiveness from your sins and hope of eternal life. This is the message of the kingdom. 
it makes us disciples, but it also helps us to mature as disciples because this good news, as recorded for us in the scriptures, is good news that compels us to not simply believe, but to obey all that he has commanded. It's an all-of-life teaching that we have in the scriptures. So we devote ourselves to the public reading of scriptures, to the exhortation, to the teaching. But are we banking too much on these words? Like this is, uh, how do we know that I'm not simply reading an interpretation back into these words, into preaching and teach, or, or to reading and to exhortation and to teaching. This is an explicit command, I'm arguing, but I want to establish that for you in your own minds by showing you that this isn't simply an isolated explicit command, but we approach this, we understand this command as part of an established tradition. Here's a second reason why I'm arguing we need to devote ourselves to this. It is because we have an established tradition. Now imagine um, somehow you're, you're lost and uh, you're in a wilderness, you're in a desert. Sounds kind of nice on a winter morning, right? To be lost in a desert. I mean, at least it'd be warm. Um, but in this particular desert, it is a desert, so you don't have water. So that part of this stinks. So you're trying to figure out how to find water, and someone gives you directions. They say what you're going to need to do is you're going to need to head straight south from here to find water. You have a compass, so you're looking at your compass, and if you're like me, you're never really sure if you're reading the compass right. So you're, you're kind of walking, and uh, you're headed south. The compass is telling you you're headed south, but then somewhere along the way, you find a path. It is a well-worn path, and it lines up it lines up with what your compass is telling you. That's, that's encouraging, right? That's comforting. The, the tradition that we find that we're going to walk in is a comfort to us because it matches the instructions, the explicit command we've already received. And the tradition goes something like this. It comes long, long even before Jesus. In Nehemiah chapter 8, in a time of revival, when God's people have come back from exile and the worship of God is, is being reestablished amongst God's people, here's what we read in Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it. Hear that? He read from it. He took the, the law, the Torah, the first five books in particular of the scriptures, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. That's a long service. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. He's reading, they're listening. This is a public reading of scripture. Now down in verse 7 of Nehemiah 8, and also, and here's some names, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathai, Hodiah, Measai, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites, listen to what they did, helped the people to understand the law. 
while the people remain in their places. Get it? He's reading, and then there's people that are there to help them understand what's being read. So there's reading, and there's teaching. Verse 8, they read from the book, the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense. They taught. So that, why? So that the people would understand the reading. They're reading, and they are teaching. But it does not end with that. There is exhortation. There's application. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord, to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. Here's the application. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Don't don't apply the text like that. Here's the encouragement. Here's the exhortation. He said to them, go your way. Eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of Yahweh is your strength. And if you keep reading in the next few verses, you hear that the people heard and they understood and they obeyed. There is reading and there is teaching. There is exhortation. This is, this is okay, but that's a one-off. That's like revival. How do we know that's actually a pattern? This becomes the pattern of worship in local synagogues, local gatherings of faithful Jewish people up until the time of Christ. So in Luke chapter 4, this is the worship setting that Jesus experiences in his life. Look at Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. What are they reading? They're reading the scriptures. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now look at what happens. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, And sat down, that's the position of the teacher, sitting down like he did on the Sermon on the Mount. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. He goes into the synagogue, he reads from the scriptures, and then he expounds them for the people. Here's how this is being fulfilled in your day and how you should respond. This wasn't just the pattern of the people before Jesus. This was the pattern of the apostles as well. Look at Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue. So they're going to go worship with faithful Jews And they sat down, and after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word, here's our word, any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Here's what they're charged to do, to exhort the people. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hands, and said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. And he exhorted them. They read, and he exhorted them. This is not simply Jewish people. This is the early church as well in Acts chapter 15 and verse 30. 
So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, notice, this always happens when the congregation gathers together. This is emphasizing the reality that the experience of God's word is a corporate activity, an enfleshed, impersoned activity. They gathered the congregation together and delivered the letter. And when they had read it, They rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged, exhorted. There's our same word. They exhorted and strengthened the brothers and sisters with many words. They gather. They read. There is exhortation from the word. This is a well-worn path, friends. This, This is a path that has a long history, and we are simply walking into it. I want to show you what happens next. This is really cool, okay? In Colossians chapter 4, This is what Paul is writing to the church, the Christian church in Colossae. Chapter 4 and verse 16. And when this letter, the letter of Colossians, has been read among you, have it also read in the church the gathering of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So this is remarkable. Already in the first century, as the apostles are writing the letters, and as the church is in the habit of gathering to read the scriptures, do you see now what they're also doing? As they read the scriptures, the Old Testament, they're also incorporating readings of the apostolic writings into their worship services. An understanding that the apostolic writings were from the Holy Spirit given to the church. And I want to show you one more. I know this is a lot. All all I'm trying to do is show you this this is a well-worn path, friends, even beyond the Scriptures. In the early centuries, Justin Martyr in the second century, so um, within 120 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus, writes this about what a typical Sunday gathering looked like. You ever wonder, what, what did church look like in the second century? Like right after Jesus' life, right after the apostles? Here's what Justin Martyr writes. The memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read for as long as there is time. Then, when the reader has finished, the president, presumably the elder or pastor, local pastor, in a discourse, admonishes, he exhorts, and invites people to practice these examples of virtue. Then we all stand up together and offer prayers. This this is all I'm trying to do is show you This is not a modern, western, post-enlightenment invention. This is not simply how the church in the western world practices these things. Going back through the history of the church into the early church from the New Testament, this is what the church has done. We devote ourselves to the reading of scriptures, to teaching, and to exhortation as we gather. this, This should have an impact on what we do, right? If we have an explicit command, we have an established tradition, it should change. It should change what we do before we gather. As we prepare to come together, we prepare to come together knowing that when we gather, the scriptures will be read and taught and exhorted. That should change the way we prepare. Maybe we read the text ahead of time. Maybe we pray through it. Maybe we pray for the preacher in light of the text. Maybe we pray for the church in light of the text before we come. It's already impacting 
how we prepare. But when we gather, in our weekly gathering, it should change as well, right? When we read the scriptures, we read with authority. This is one of the things we do as a church. There are various types of scripture readings. You saw this even last week that are open to anyone to read in the context of the gathered church. But when we come to the preaching of God's word, we understand the reading itself of the text that we're going to be preaching from to be a part of the preaching activity. That's why we reserve this reading specifically for men who are qualified to preach. So we read and we read the text with authority as part of the act of preaching. It also affects, you know, in our gathering how much time we spend. That's why even in the midst of a pandemic, we have continued to devote ourselves to it, meaning there is a significant portion of our time when we're gathered where we consecrate specifically to reading and teaching and exhortation from God's word. It should also impact, then, how we listen. Did, did you pick that up in the text in Nehemiah chapter 8? The people listened attentively. Friends, what, I, what I'm trying to do with all of this, hopefully, is help build faith in you so that you understand, as a hearer, when I come Sunday by Sunday, we're not simply doing something that our pastors have decided, hey, maybe this is a good expression of ministry. What we're doing, we're doing by faith, believing that we have a command from God who has given us these commands because his desire is to bless us, to make and to mature disciples as we devote ourselves to the study of his word. This doesn't just impact how, how, we, how we gather beforehand or, or in our gathering. It also impacts us what we do after our gathering as well, right? From the conversations that we have immediately after a service to the conversations that we have in our small groups to the informal fellowship we have with other Christians throughout the week. All of this is informed by what God has shown us from his word as we've been taught and exhorted Sunday by Sunday. It's not to change our expectations. It's not to change how we approach what we do on Sundays and beyond because we have an explicit command, because we have an established tradition. And, and here's the third reason why we need to devote ourselves to this. It's because we have an expectation of salvation. We have an expectation, as Pastor Jason was exhorting us in the Lord's Supper, we have a future hope still that remains that we are longing for. And our degree of confidence then is somehow bound up with our sense of urgency. And Paul, Paul is very urgent as he, and I don't know if you picked up on this in the reading, as he's saying, devote yourself to this. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone despise you. Don't neglect the gift that was given to you through prophecy. Keep a close watch on the teaching. Persist in this. He is urgent and he is emphatic. And there's a correlation between urgency and confidence, like, um, when, 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 when we play hockey, I see some guys that are like, uh, they, they call for passes. Like they are so confident. Like if you just give me the puck, I will score. Now me, on the other hand, I've played too long to know that. So I'm like, I'll like maybe kind of quietly 
call for it or maybe just hope the guy sees me because I know what's going to happen is if I call for it and he gives it to me, I'm going to muff it. And, and then he's like, and then that guy's never going to pass to me again. So I'm not going to like draw attention to the fact that I'm about to make a mistake. So, so like the level of confidence increases urgency. Paul has all kinds of confidence. So he's giving all kinds of urgency to, to the command. Look at the confidence that he has. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching the close watch on yourself is what he said. Don't let them look down on you for your youth. Why? Because you are preaching and teaching. So keep a close watch on yourself so that they'll hear the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, persisting in this teaching, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That is a high degree of confidence and expectation. You and they will be saved. Now, what do, we, what do we understand Paul to be meaning here when he says you will save both yourself and your hearers? On the one hand, we understand that, again, the scriptures, as they're taught and we're exhorted from them, will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people will become disciples. But that's not primarily what Paul is concerned about here, right? He's not concerned that, hey, maybe Timothy doesn't know Jesus. Uh, Timothy probably needs to hear the gospel and, and become, he, Timothy needs to get saved. That's not what Paul's thinking. The, the, the picture of salvation that Paul is laying out here is not just one that begins with conversion, but one that ends with the ultimate eschatological hope. He wants Timothy and the hearers to persevere, to hold on, to make it to the end. We have an expectation, a hope, a longing, an aching, and a need of God's grace to continue to save us, to hold us fast to the end. Paul says the way we're going to make it, the way we're going to endure, the way we're going to persevere is by gathering Sunday after Sunday and hearing the preaching of the word of God. This is, this is a contrast, right? See what, he, see what he says? Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. This is a contrast from what he said earlier in the letter. In chapter 1, don't let them devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Don't let them devote themselves to that. But at the beginning of chapter 4, he highlights this again. He, he says this in chapter 4 and verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. They won't make it. They won't endure to the end and be saved. They'll depart from the faith by what? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. They're devoting themselves to the wrong things, to the wrong teaching. So if we're going to be saved and not depart from the faith, we must devote ourselves to the right things. This is, really, this is really important for us to get our heads around as um, we are bombarded by messaging from the world. In your social media feeds, in the shows that you watch, in the company that you keep in your workplace, in our schools, we are bombarded by the teachings of the world and the deceitful spirits of Satan. The, the people of Paul's day, the people of Timothy's day in Ephesus, they had, uh, they had particular deceitful lies, particular ways of thinking, these myths and genealogies that they were prone to believe, that the people around them were prone to give themselves to. And we certainly have that too, don't we? 
myths of the origins of the universe and how people came to be and myths of what a happy and fulfilled life actually is, myths of what it means to flourish as a human, myths about human sexuality and gender and all these kinds of things, and our culture is devoted to them. They are devoted to them so fiercely that they fly the flag on demand, they, they hang the banners in the stores, they hang the banners in our schools, they fill casts with them for movies, TV shows, and listen, they even enshrine it in law so that very soon in our country it will be illegal to simply say what God says about gender and sexuality. They are devoted, they are fiercely devoted to lies and the teaching of demons. And you know what that does to us as we're bombarded with these voices? It doesn't take long before we start to feel crazy, right? We start to feel weird. We start to feel like, like we're strange. I want to read to you. I've, I've read this quote before, but it's one that I've had to go back to in my own mind, so I'm sharing it again with you in hopes that it is helpful. It's from G.K. Beale writing about this experience. He says this, Worldliness is whatever any culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness to be strange. What's worldliness? It's whatever a culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. When we imbibe, when we drink in the zeitgeist, the, the spirit of the age of worldliness, then we feel strange trying to think Christianly and to act according to the Bible's mandates. That is, when we think the world's thoughts after it and do not think God's thoughts after him, we will not be motivated to do the things that God wants us to do, but we will only feel comfortable acting in a manner that fits into the world's way of doing things. That's a dangerous spot, friend. Here's what he continues to say. That is why Christians who cease going to church, begin to feel more and more comfortable in the world and less and less comfortable in the church. Why? Because the world is devoted to their doctrine and they're devoted to it and they're discipling you in it. You're hearing these voices. So when you stop coming to church, you stop hearing the preaching of the word, you begin to feel strange than when you do hang around Christians or come to church. He continues, for the same reason, this is why regular attendance at church is so important. At church we worship, how? By hearing God's word, praising God, praying, partaking of the Lord's Supper and fellowshipping, all of which encourages believers and convinces them that they are indeed the ones who are normal. And that the world is strange before God's eyes. Anyone else feel like they need to be comforted that they're normal? <laughs> I feel like so much of what Sunday does for me week by week is remind me that I'm not the only one who believes this. That there are brothers and sisters around us that as we go back to God's word together, we build the discipline into our lives of getting back into God's word together. It reorients us. It resets our minds. It reminds us of the truth 
that we are normal, and it is the world that is strange. Friends, we have need of persevering. We have felt it over the last two years like many of us have never felt it in our lives. If we are going to make it, if we are going to be saved, we need to be normalized by the truth of God's word that we devote ourselves to Sunday by Sunday. If we're going to be saved. Do we believe in the sovereignty of God? That God is able to save to the uttermost and that he will preserve us? Yes, a thousand percent, yes. But we also understand that our God is a God who uses means. If a hockey player is going to score a goal, he's got to use a stick. Our God uses the scriptures, the reading, the teaching, the exhortation. I had an old pastor tell me one time a story of someone who was challenging him. He was, he was confused about his church attendance and wasn't sure if it was worth it to come. He said, Pastor, I come every week, week after week for all these years, and I just, I don't know, like, I don't know if it's worth it. Like, I can remember, like, barely even a handful of sermons that I've heard over the years. I feel like I don't need to come. And this older pastor responded to him. He said, you know, my wife has fed me thousands of meals over the years, tens of thousands of meals. It's like I can remember very few of them, but if I hadn't eaten them all, I'd be dead. Our, Our expectation as we come week by week shouldn't be today the pastor's gonna knock my socks off with some remarkable TED Talk, some memorable event like a conference message or some mountaintop high. Our expectation is that we come and it might just be peanut butter and jam this week. Maybe it's just Cheerios. But it's the nutrition, it's the sustenance, it's the strength that we need to endure to the end, week by week, the kind grace of God feeding and strengthening the church so that we will endure to the end and be saved. Hear this warning. Conversely, for those who do not come, who do not come regularly, who will not devote themselves to the regular public reading and exhortation and teaching, you will become anemic and weak. And you will begin to doubt whether God is able to strengthen you and to sustain you. You're weak because you're not eating. This is where it starts. If we're going to be strong disciples who multiply, who go and pray and evangelize and and worship God and plant churches and do all the rest of the great, wonderful, great commission work, it all starts with this. The proclamation of the word under which people are saved, made disciples, and matured as disciples so that we will endure to the end. This great and glorious, marvelous, global work begins with a simple act of local, ordinary churches week by week coming together and doing the most normal thing for us in the world. Reading the Bible. Asking, what does it say? And so what should I do? It all starts with preaching. Let's pray.